It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front line, including a dispatch from our foreign correspondent Colin Freeman, who's on the ground in Kramatorsk following yesterday's deadly strike on a restaurant in the centre of the city. We also discuss the future of Yevgeny Prigozhin and Vladimir Putin, after the leader of the Wagner Group reportedly arrived in exile in Belarus. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 28th of June, one year and 124 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, and foreign correspondent Colin Freeman. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So yesterday evening, about 7.30 local time, in Kramatorsk. Kramatorsk is in centre east of the country. It's um, it's just northwest of of Bakhmut. The area was hit by Russian missile strikes. There were a, an area which included a number of civilian buildings, but an area of shops and restaurants that were that were hit. Colin Freeman, our our reporter, who was out there. He was in that in the pizza restaurant that was wiped out. He was called away to go and do a story. Just he'd sat down at the pizza restaurant and um, was looking at them through the menu and then we got called away on another job and a few minutes later the, the missile hit. I think we're going to hear from, from Colin a little bit later. But the, uh, the city's mayor has said the death toll from that strike has risen to 10. That includes three children. Two of the three 
Children who were killed were 14-year-old twin sisters, Yulia and Anna Aksinchenko. I'd invite you to say their names now, Yulia and Anna Aksinchenko. Search and rescue operations are ongoing. Kramatorsk is, um, as I say, it's about 20 k's northwest of Bakhmut. It's been hit many, many times through the war. So far, there are 61 wounded. There's damage to schools, five schools, two kindergartens, 65 houses, 18 multi-storey buildings. If you want an idea for how this is received and promulgated by Russian State TV, I'd point you to Francis Scar, who's a colleague of ours over at the BBC. He's a journalist. He specialises in watching Russian State TV to see how, uh, how things are reported there. He's tweeted this morning that at the start of her morning programme, talk show, talk show host Olga Skavieva, and I really wouldn't bother trying to remember her name except maybe when she pops up in The Hague, but she, uh, she started her show by declaring the missiles were aimed at NATO instructors and the strike's objective was a- achieved. Yeah, just shows you the, the moral bar that we're dealing with. In another strike yesterday on Kremenchuk, so that uh, Kremenchuk is a city on the Dnipro River. Basically, if you get a map of Ukraine, stick a pin right in the middle, that's where Kremenchuk is. Not, not exactly, it's a little bit further to the east, but that's, that's, sort of, that's sort of it. Civilian houses were hit. Uh, no reports of any casualties yet from that strike. However, notable that it was a, a year to the day that a Russian missile strike killed at least 22 people that were killed in a shopping mall. So Russia marking their... We know they like anniversaries. They now seem to be marking their anniversary of war crimes. Elsewhere, Alexei Reznikov, who's Ukraine's defence minister, says the liberation of a group of villages under Russian occupation in recent weeks, including areas that have not been retaken by Ukraine since 2014, were, in his words, not the main event of Kyiv's counteroffensive. He's been speaking to the Financial Times, gave an interview to them, and he said, quote, when it happens, you will all see it. Everyone will see everything. And he added, as we've been suggesting in the last few weeks, he's added that Ukraine's main troop reserves, including most of those brigades recently trained in and by the West and equipped with modern, mostly NATO tanks and armoured vehicles, have yet to be used in the on the operation. So elsewhere, I'll just I'll just do a little bit more on the uh, on the fallout from the mutiny with a bounty or whatever we're going to call it. So U.S. officials who so U.S. officials briefed on American intelligence. That's the distinction that The New York Times are saying. And I think we need to be careful to stick to that just so we know or we, we have an idea of where the information is coming to us from. So U.S. officials who have been briefed on American intelligence. They suggested Russian General Sergei Sorovkin. Remember him? He was initially the commander of Russia's army group South, and very briefly, from October last year to January this year, he was briefly commander of all Russian forces in Ukraine. So New York Times suggesting that he knew of Prigozhin's plan on Saturday, prompting questions about what support Wagner Group had inside the top ranks of of the the Kremlin's machine. So the New York Times are saying they've been briefed on the matter or, or saying their people they've been speaking to people who have been briefed on the matter. Uh, US officials are, are are trying to learn if Sorovkin helped plan the action. Now, Sorovkin, just a quick bit of background, he has historically been seen as close to Prigozhin. He was partly the reason we think partly the reason for him being sacked as the head of the whole operation in Ukraine in January was with when Shoigu and Gerasimov managed to stamp their authority. Gerasimov replaced Sorovkin. So Gerasimov, as well as being the head of the whole Russian armed forces, he's, he's also in charge of the war, which sort of shows that there's a level of chaos at the higher echelons of their command and control. 
However, Sorovkin was always thought to be very close to Prigozhin, but he came out very, very quickly on Saturday condemning Wagner's move, which possibly condemned it if it was a coup, whatever whatever we think it was. Sorovkin would be exactly that level of commander that Prigozhin would have sought to turn onto his side if the whole thing was going to work. So with that in mind, it's worth having a look at the comments from Mark Galliotti, a defence analyst, another one we should all be following on Twitter. He has suggested that Sorovkin's very public stance on Saturday, his very public standing with Putin, or at least stand against Prigozhin, which amounts to the same thing, in, uh, in Mark Galliotti's words, might have helped cleanse his record and make him eligible to be reappointed overall commander in Ukraine or even made chief of the general staff after Gerasimov. Mark Galliotti continues, Sorovkin uh, is not a nice man, but he is dangerously competent. And he says, this is just speculation, but suggesting complicity with Prigozhin's treachery, to use Putin's words, would seem a good way of helping derail his return. So that's a comment as to possibly why Sorovkin came out so strongly against the, um, the action. Now, US officials said, again, in the New York Times article, saying there are signs that other Russian generals may have supported uh, the Wagner's dash up the M4. They've, uh, the article goes on to say that current and former US officials have said that Prigozhin would not have launched his uprising unless he believed that others in positions of power would come to his aid. And with that in mind, news today that Russian Interior Ministry General Alexander Travnikov was involved in a serious road accident at the weekend. He is said to have been up in St. Petersburg, up in that region, spending the weekend up there. He was driving, lost control of his vehicle, spanked into a tree, and he's said to be in a critical condition in hospital. I will take a little pause there. Got some more stuff on what's happening inside Russia, Russia's domestic intelligence agency, and some comments from Putin about Wagner. But I'll just, I'll just let, you, let you come back there, David. Thanks, Tom. Earlier today, I caught up with foreign correspondent Colin Freeman, who was in Kramatorsk when yesterday's missile hit. In fact, he left the affected restaurant just half an hour before they struck. I called him to ask him about the experience. Hi, Colin. It's very good to hear that Hi. you're safe. Can you just talk to us a little bit about yesterday night? Where, where were you? What were your movements? Yeah, so we're in the city of Kramatorsk at the moment in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region. It's a city quite close to the main Donbass front lines around Donetsk and Bakhmut. And we went for an evening meal at one of the few local restaurants that is still open. It's called the, um, the Ria Restaurant and Bar. It's a sort of pizzeria place, quite popular with everyone who is working here, with journalists, aid workers, and, uh, and also some of the off-duty soldiers who uh, are in Slavyansk. We sat down um, to order at seven o'clock, more or less exactly on the dot. We were browsing the menus and then about two minutes past them, we, we got a phone call from a contact of ours saying, we have an interview that you might be interested in doing, but the interviewee is, is, is going to be done literally in the next hour. So we shot off to the other side of town and then about half past seven, while we were sitting doing this interview on the other side of town, we heard a couple of very loud bangs of incoming missiles of some sort or other. Didn't think too much of it at the time, but were then told by one of the Ukrainians that were with us that, that one of the missiles had landed in the vicinity of the Rio restaurant where we'd been um, sitting just earlier and where we'd broken off our meal. We then drove back to the Rio restaurant just to see 
if anything uh, had been hit at about eight o'clock. And when we got there, we saw a scene of absolute devastation. The missile had pretty much hit the restaurant directly, completely destroyed it, really. It's just a large sea of rubble. There was emergency service workers at the scene pulling people out on stretchers. It wasn't really clear at that point how many people had been killed or injured, although judging by the look of it, you know, it looked like a lot. I was staring at this sea of rubble and thinking like, right, somewhere in the middle of there, that's where we were sitting just earlier. And we now understand that I think either nine or 10 people were killed and something like 60 injured, which given, you know, that the restaurant was probably about half full at the time, comes as no surprise to me. So uh, a a very lucky escape for me, really. But sadly, just, uh, you know, another day in the life and death of Ukraine, I suppose you could say. Could you describe a little more the the restaurant itself? In in your piece for The Telegraph, you write that it's one of the many watering holes that challenges Ukraine's image as a gritty post-Soviet backwater. Could you sort of colour that image in for us? What, what, What was it like before it was hit? Yeah, well, the, the Donbass region, especially of eastern Ukraine, is, is considered um, the, one of the kind of more run-down Rust Belt areas. But when you go into the, uh, the city centre in somewhere like Kramatorsk, you do get restaurants that would not like look out of place in any European capital. It's got modern black and chrome seating, slightly Nordic style, I suppose you could say. looks just like a smart bar brasserie of the sort that you could find in Islington or in Paris or really anywhere you care to mention. And what, what's the atmosphere and the reaction been like on the ground today in Kramatorsk? What have you seen? Well, we went down back to the restaurant this morning just a couple of hours ago. There are still people there, mainly a few of the staff have gathered there just to watch, but they were still pretty, pretty much in shock, didn't want to talk. There is clearly outrage at what happened because a lot of civilians have died including, we are told, two teenage girls. Last night, while we were standing watching the rescue operation, we did interview one woman who was watching very tearfully and anxiously at the, as, as rescue workers dragged people from the wreckage. We asked why she was there. She said she had a friend, a, a local father, who had been dining there with his two, da- his two daughters, who she said were both 15, we we're not sure if this is definitely the same people, but we know this morning there's been pictures of two two fourteen year old twin girls who we understand were killed in the attack, and we we're we're guessing, but I think it seems fairly likely that they they that lady was talking about the two girls who are now appear to be confirmed as dead. Obviously, many of our listeners uh, will never have seen in person the impact, the effects of a, a missile strike on a restaurant. When you were at the scene, what what would you say to them to just to get you know, to help them understand what, what happened and what the scene in front of you? I mean, it, it's just a jumble of wreckage. The, the 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 roof is caved in. Every window within about five hundred yards is is destroyed. There is shrapnel everywhere, and, and, and the, the, the impact of a missile like that turns the entire restaurant's infrastructure into deadly pieces of shrapnel, which just fly everywhere and cause a great number of deaths and injuries. For example, we were stood 
under a tree this morning, observing the, the the aftermath of the bombing, and I suddenly noticed that in a in a branch of the tree directly above us was a large piece of um, of metal corrugated iron. I think torn corrugated iron from the um, from the roof of the restaurant, and I suddenly moved away. You suddenly realised if that falls out of the tree, that alone falls out of the tree and lands on my head, that's going to be quite a nasty injury. So imagine all that flying around at explosive force, which is what happens when you get the initial bombing. It's just a, a cloud of deadly debris slashing and cutting at anything in its way. And, um, you know, it, it's no surprise that there are 10 people dead and 60 injured, some of them, I think, probably quite seriously. Final question from me. In the piece for us you've written this time, I couldn't help thinking of myself as well. As, as you said, you, you were in the restaurant just half an hour before the deadly missile strike. H- how, how are you dealing with this? And will this impact on, on, on your work in the future? No, I mean, to be honest, I, when, when you hear about something like this retrospectively, when you hear, oh, you had a lucky escape and you're fine, your first instinct is just to think, well, I'm fine, nothing, nothing wrong here, move on. And you know, horrific as these events are, Ukraine is a very big country, and although these missile attacks are all too frequent, I think you do still have to be, I've always said to myself, you do have to be fairly unlucky to be sitting in the wrong spot at the wrong time, just as a missile lands. You know, there's an element of them being black swan events, I suppose. That's all the way way I've always looked at it. But today is one of those days where you realise that even though the odds are still long, they're not that long. Colin, is there anything else you'd want our listeners to know and understand before you head off for the rest of the day? Just the listeners will be probably reading reports that there were soldiers in this place as well. And I think the Russian government has said that it deliberately targeted it because it had, had soldiers in there. It's right, it is used by soldiers, but then soldiers, you, you, you'll see soldiers in every single restaurant, in every single cafe, in every single shop, in, in every single place you'll, you'll ever set foot in in Ukraine. And that is because this is a war that has required the mobilisation of the civilian population to defend the country. Therefore, there are soldiers everywhere. They don't, you know, they're not, they're not just people who are confined to certain barracks. So to say this, to describe this place as some sort of military installation that was a legitimate target is somewhat disingenuous. Well, Colin, it's really good to hear that you're safe and you and your translator. So thank you very much for calling in and best of luck with the rest of your week. You're welcome. Francis Sternley, what's the latest political and diplomatic updates you're looking at? Thanks, David. It was speculation yesterday, but we have now had it confirmed. Prigozhin is in Belarus. So Belarusian state news agency Belta quoted President Lukashenko yesterday as saying that he arrived on what would have been our time a few hours after our broadcast. So probably around the late afternoon, early evening for many listeners abroad. As a reminder, under the deal mediated by Lukashenko on Saturday that aided the mutiny by Wagner's forces, Prigozhin was meant to move to Belarus while his men were given the choice of joining him 
all being integrated into Russia's regular armed forces. Now, it seems that Lukashenko is openly encouraging the former. He said yesterday that his defence minister had told him that he wouldn't mind having a unit like Wagner in the Belarusian army. And indeed, Lukashenko then instructed him to negotiate with Prigozhin on the matter before adding that his country wants to learn from the war experience of the Wagner group. And I'll quote from him. He said, if their commanders come to us and help us, tell us what's important right now, that's priceless. That's what we need to take from Wagner. Belarusians have nothing to fear from the presence of mercenaries. We will keep a close eye on them. I mean, just as a little aside here, what an extraordinary admission this is. I don't need to remind listeners of the atrocities and war crimes reportedly perpetrated by Wagner forces. We discussed back in April the testimony of one former mercenary who admitted tossing grenades at injured Ukrainian POWs. They sent a bloodied sledgehammer in a violin case to the European Parliament after MEP started proceedings to label them as terrorists. It's responsible for a raft of crimes against humanity in the Central African Republic. A new investigative report actually has found that they've been perfecting a nightmarish blueprint blueprint for state capture. It's a direct quote from them to enable Wagner to plunder the country's national resources. And really, if you take all that together, I think countries have a responsibility who maintain ties with Belarus to condemn these kind of remarks in the strongest possible terms. Any association with this group should really be beyond the pale. And yet Lukashenko is doing it openly, as of course is Russia now. Now, for me, the most interesting question regarding Lukashenko's involvement in the fallout from the coup, and more generally in his relationship with Putin in recent months, is whether he has been weakened or strengthened by this, and or whether his decisions emanate from a position of strategic independence or dependency. Now, more pessimistically, from his perspective, Lukashenko must know that the fall of Putin almost certainly would have proven fatal to his regime in Minsk. So by aiding Putin, he had dodged a bullet. But the price for averting that, hosting Prigozhin in exile, brings hazards of its own. As Roland has written about for the paper today, expanding on his discussion on the podcast yesterday, Lukashenko and his eldest son Nikolai command the loyalty of Belarus's security services largely because of their monopoly on distributing wealth and other privileges. The arrival of Prigozhin, a billionaire with a record of paying people to fight, may well destabilise that. It's unclear whether the ex-Wagner fighters will be fully controllable. Putin might even use the presence of the mercenaries there, integrated into the Belarusian army, to pressure Minsk to formally send Belarusian troops to fight in Ukraine, something that Lukashenko has avoided until now because he knows how unpopular that would be at home. So whilst in the short term this may have boosted Lukashenko, it could be far more harmful in the long term. Now, more generally, whilst Belarus seems to be only going one way towards Russia... That ignores how unpopular Lukashenko is amongst many Belarusian citizens. Many analysts may be misinterpreting the situation in Belarus at the moment. And as we discussed at the time, the day of the announcement back in March regarding the delivery of nuclear weapons was Belarus Freedom Day. That's an unofficial holiday celebrated by the oppressed Belarusian opposition. That decision was arguably deliberately timed to try and shore up an unstable country in case it echoes Ukraine in tipping westwards in the years ahead. So if you see it in that way, 
Belarus is not a pillar in Putin's new empire, but an unreliable partner destined to become more unstable as a consequence of the war in Ukraine and of the Wagner Group being exiled there. And if so, Belarus is not alone in that regard. Putin's inverted collared allies in Europe, such as Serbia and in Central Asia, have been rattled by this war. Many are angry and refuse to back Putin in the way that he wants. And James Kilner has talked about this so many times on the podcast. In many ways, this war has eroded Russian influence as opposed to strengthened it. And it sounds like an obvious point, but it's worth making. True allies, if they are indeed true, don't need this constant shoring up. You don't need to give them nuclear weapons. The very nature of a true friendship, like perhaps the one we see with the United States and Britain, for instance, is where you don't need to be constantly talking about how much the relationship means between the two and how much military support is being offered one way or the other. It just happens. We don't hear about most of the exchange of information that's going on between the US and its closest allies. They are just taking place naturally. And yet all the time we see Putin talking about how strong the ties are with these countries. Usually, whatever you're talking about is to try and justify an insecurity in your own mind. And that's true in personal relationships as it is in political ones. Now, one final thought on Prigozhin in Belarus. Assuming that some unlucky accident doesn't befall him, shot in the head by a police officer, hanging himself in his jail cell or struck by a bolt of lightning, then I think he will have to be pleased with this outcome. There is power in exile. Historically, when things are going wrong in your country, it is better to be out of the fray unscathed by the political fallout and ready, potentially, to swoop in when the time is right, if that's your ambition, like some sort of saviour. Playing the outsider in an unpopular political establishment has influence. And if, indeed, he does have political ambitions, as many have speculated, being on the outside, as things are destined to go further down a harmful path domestically, it's quite a convenient place to be. But that is a big assumption that he comes out of this alive. And as I say, I think that remains quite a big assumption indeed. But there are some more updates, David, but I'll take a pause there. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom, can I come back to you? Um, you mentioned you had a few more updates. Um, but first, can we talk a little bit more about Putin and Wagner? What, what's Putin said about Wagner's actions? Well, he's said a few bits and bobs. The one thing he's notably not said so far is the name Yevgeny Prigozhin. He's uh, this guy who he created, basically, and and we think, think was fairly close. I mean, it's probably a very transactional relationship, but we think they were close. He just refused to say his name. Now, interestingly, yesterday, Russia's domestic intelligence agency has said it is dropping the armed mutiny criminal charges against Prigozhin and Wagner. But about the same time, Putin has continued his efforts to frame the narrative by suggesting that he, he's been, he was in control all the time. He allowed the Wagner dash to happen so as not to cause any bloodshed, despite the loss of around a dozen Russian service personnel with what we think was at least six aircraft shot down by Wagner. But speaking yesterday, Putin acknowledged for the first time that Krem, the Kremlin funds Wagner. We've, we've known that for a long time, but he's, he's not said it. He's always distanced himself from it if he ever speaks of it at all. But yeah, he's, he's talking about how the Kremlin funds Wagner, saying the state had made various payments to Wagner personnel and their families from Russia's federal budget. He, he refused to use Prigozhin's name, as I said. He kept referring to the owner of the Concord Company. Concord is the overarching structure under which Wagner sits. But he kept saying the owner of the Concord Company. 
and said the company had received 80 billion rubles, that's about $950 million, between May of last year and May of this year for delivering and catering food to the Russian military and other services, obviously, and that the Kremlin is going to investigate whether the company stole anything during its work for the for the Kremlin. Now, Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, ISW, saying that, that this is clearly Putin manoeuvring to set up this investigation of the Concord company. It's going to be going to be in all likelihood justified or used to justify future confiscation of Prigozhin's assets on corruption charges and so on and so forth. So I mean it's interesting the the, the framing here and the and the pace what's happening internally and externally. I don't think it was any any coincidence at all the strike yesterday on Krematorsk, especially the civilian toll, the deliberate aiming at civilian areas because it it gets us talking talking about something other than Putin's position he can also use that internally to show what a big strong man he is killing children and so on and so forth so you know we have to mark both we have to we have to note both but yes I think um, I think Prigozhin's or the the days of the Wagner group continuing as it is are very very much numbered but again as I as I said on Monday I just I really can't I can't square that circle in my head because the the cash cow that is slash was Wagner through the mineral and gold deposits mainly across Africa. I just I don't know how Russia will will change that model or change the people who do do that and keep the cash flowing, or whether Wagner will survive in some in some way. Having charges dropped on this on the armed mutiny charges, and yet people stood in Red Square as uh, as as Roland mentioned yesterday, just holding a holding a blank piece of paper, arrested for protesting i mean it just doesn't sit well and it won't sit well with russian society but there, there doesn't seem to be any coming back from the with this relationship between putin and Prigozhin and wagner but there's still many many things that that just don't make any sense thank you very much dom francis anything more to add on this before we move to some other political and diplomatic updates well i will just say that uh, obviously putin admitted yesterday that the rebellion was an extremely dangerous situation and I think it's interesting, too, the fact that he did admit or at least argue, whether it's true or not, that the Russian state had entirely supported Wagner financially by paying them a billion dollars in the last year. Clearly, he is trying to take credit for their earlier battlefield successes. But I think he's also trying to make it clear to the mercenaries themselves that they have been paid in full whatever Prigozhin may be telling them. And as I say, it's still an extraordinary admission, given that Russia denied any involvement with the group for years. And it's yet another example of state-sanctioned lying until a reversal of fortune, and they suddenly change their entire narrative. And I'll come back to that point in my final thoughts. But there are some other political updates, David, which I'm happy to dive into now. So moving away from Belarus and Russia, Jeremy Bowen of the BBC has published an interesting piece measuring the reaction in Kyiv to the events from the weekend. And he says, and I quote, the drama over the border in Russia has hardened the view in Kyiv that Mr Putin's time as Russia's president is coming to an end. And he quotes from Andrei Yermak, President Zelensky's closest advisor, of course, who says that the countdown has started and that this Russia is a terrorist country whose leader is an inadequate person who has lost connection with reality. 
the world must conclude that it's impossible to have any kind of serious relationship with that country. So that is Kiev's view. Nevertheless, Mr. Bowen says that senior Ukrainians are still doing their best to manage expectations about the summer offensive. They believe some of their Western allies, as well as supporters in the media, have become overexcited about Ukraine's army and its NATO equipment, which, of course, is a concern that we've talked about on the podcast. They are working hard in preparation for the NATO summit next month in Lithuania. He says that Lezensky and his advisers are seeking a firm and unequivocal path to NATO membership, believing that the best answer to the instability in Russia is to present an iron wall to Moscow now. And the Lithuanian president, I should say, just as an additional point, will meet Zelensky in Kyiv today to discuss just this matter, as well as two new air defence systems that it is purchasing for Ukraine. So just another example there of these kind of diplomatic overtures that are being made almost constantly. And we try and report as many on as many of them as we can. But Jerry Bone concludes, and I think it's an interesting point, the uncertainty surrounding President Putin and his regime almost a year and a half into a disastrous war and after the Wagner drama might feed the anxiety of those NATO countries who would prefer the war to end around the negotiating table, not on the battlefield. And I mention this because I, I know I've talked about it several months ago, but this is a genuine anxiety amongst, I think, many politicians that think... It's better the devil you know than these kind of characters like Prigozhin, who, if they were to assume power, are seeking to escalate this war, so they say, and are considered more unreliable in terms of what they may or may not be willing to do in order to further their own aims. Now, one wonders, of course, how things could be much worse than a genocidal dictator uh, invading a sovereign nation on European soil. But seeing it from their perspective, at least they feel whether they're accurate or not, that they have a sense of an understanding about how Putin operates. He's been there for many, many years. Diplomats will know their fellow diplomats on the other side of the aisle, as it were. This matters in negotiations. And clearly there has been a crippling failure of the West for many years. But they do think that they still have a better grasp now of what is going on. There is great danger in uncertainty. And that is the perception. And so there will be many people, I'm sure, in Washington, in London, in Brussels and elsewhere, who would have been watching the events at the weekend, not with jubilation, but with great alarm, particularly because of this nuclear question and what it would mean to have someone like Prigozhin in charge of one of the world's largest nuclear arsenals. So I just mentioned that this is an open discussion point and one that I'm sure we will return to with with guests and amongst ourselves. Of This question is, is it better for Putin to go or not? I mean, listeners will know my view, but this is an open question for many political leaders. They think it's better for Putin to remain in power, but weakened and restricted and contained than it is for him to be ousted and for you to end up with someone like Prigozhin. Now, there are some other interesting developments in the US in the past few days, not least regarding President Obama's remarks about Ukraine in an interview and the so-called Graham Blumenthal resolution. But I'm going to discuss those tomorrow, David, as they warrant more analysis than we can fit in today's episodes, given everything that's going on in Europe at the moment and the reaction from the weekend. But there is some interesting developments there. And I'm very grateful to the American listeners who've reached out to flag them with us. We are aware, but we're going to do them in more detail, hopefully tomorrow. 
Thank you very much, Francis. Just very quickly, you mentioned, you know, listeners will know your view. Would you mind just for us sketching that out again? I mean, what you've done just there is, I think, present a, a, a very interesting account of how some diplomats and politicians are thinking. Wh- where would you place your own analysis as of against that? Well, I tend to think that it's more dangerous to have a competent state actor perpetrating the kind of crimes we've seen in Ukraine than an incompetent one. Putin is not a genius, I don't believe, but I do I do think that he is a very effective operator. He knows the West's weaknesses. He's, of course, studied us for decades when he was operating within the Russian state, both as a KGB officer and afterwards. He has clearly outmaneuvered the West for many, many years. And as a consequence of that, I don't think that it's necessarily a good thing for somebody like that who is has the intellectual means as well as the immoral capacity to undermine the West and invade sovereign nations. I tend to think that it is better to sow discord and to try and bring about change because the chances are that you will not have somebody who is as competent as he is. And actually, what you quite often see in dictatorships is that all competency is at the very top because they dare not have other competent operators around them. So any successor to Putin is arguably more likely to be incompetent than competent. So my own view is it's probably best to try and see him gone than it is for him to remain there. Because, as I say, I underline the point that I made a moment ago, which is that we how much worse can this realistically get? I mean, you've got somebody who is perpetrating egregious crimes on European soil and has been had an arrest warrant issued for him in The Hague. I mean, if that's not bad enough of wanting to see him out of power, then what is? And I take the nuclear point. But that all, again, depends on whether you think Putin, if in a corner, would use nuclear weapons. And I'm going to return to that point in the final thought, because Timothy Snyder, Professor Timothy Snyder, of course, historian, very distinguished, and we've talked about a lot in the past. Uh, His analysis is always insightful, thinks that there is no reason to think that Putin would resort to nuclear weapons. And if things get bad that he will actually more likely withdraw from Ukraine and save himself. And I think if you look at the actions that have taken place over the weekend, there is a very strong reason to think that that would be the case, that he will save himself rather than trying to fight some kind of ideological war in Ukraine. I mean, this goes back to the very essence of what this war is all about and whether you see it as a move by an operator who's basically thought he could get away with doing this because he thought it would shore him up and would strengthen his political power as well as making him this great leader, essentially a sort of Machiavellian realpolitik view, or whether you see him as an ideologue and more of a kind of Hitler model who has a clear view about what world he wants to create and is willing to destroy his own country and the world in order to achieve that. As I've said before, I firmly believe that in 1945, if Hitler had access to nuclear weapons, he would have used them on the Allied powers in an attempt to win because of his ideology and the way that he conceived the world. I do not believe that of Putin's calculations. I do not believe he is an ideologue. I believe that he is a... Uh, a sort of rational operator who moves and operates in the space that is allowed for him to operate in by Western powers and others. We as the West allowed him to operate in a space that was far too expansive. And now we are trying to constrain it too late. So really, it all boils down, David, to what kind of man you think Putin is. And I know we had a very open discussions about those very questions when this podcast first began. But I think over the duration of this conflict, we've got a clearer sense of the man. And I think it's a man who's far 
are actually less frightening. And as a result, I'd like to see him gone because of his danger and his intellectual competence, which has been shown to be effective in years prior to now. Thank you very much, Francis. Dom, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, I'd just offer the the, the thought that I'm, I think I might be on the other side of the fence there from Francis, that I would like to see Ukraine win this war and shove all the Russians out of uh, Ukrainian territory, all of it. And um, I'm kind of thinking that actually if Putin was then then disappeared from the stage, unless we obviously saw him locked up or or killed in some kind of coup or whatever, we probably wouldn't know where he was, but he, he wouldn't be... He wouldn't be struggling for a penny or two. So I kind of wonder if having him in power and then seeing the world, and I'm crossing fingers here, but seeing the world isolate him and Russia, if this is if this is a moment for the world to, to say to would-be dictators, this is what you can this is what you can expect. And I think if we if we look at what might what else might be at play here and other countries for example, China, that might be looking at their own issues, South China Sea, Taiwan, through the lens of Ukraine. I think Putin remaining in power, a much diminished and weakened man and state, that might be a a lesson or a salutary indicator for others that might seek to change sovereignty and geographic boundaries by military conquest. Get rid of him, shake the snow dome, change everything, it could be better, it could be worse, but I just wonder if, if the world will not draw lessons from this that, that would be otherwise be obvious if he were to remain in power, Russia was shunned by the international community, weakened and so on and so forth. I'm not saying any of that stuff would happen, I hope it would do, but I just think there are there are other lessons beyond kicking Russia out of Ukraine. There are other lessons that the world should really, really take from this from this moment of history. I just want to come back very quickly on that because I I, I think I, I don't disagree with Dom's analysis. And I should say that I fluctuate on this point as well. But two addendums to, to what we've just been talking about. I think similar calculations, of course, were made with Saddam Hussein and regarding the Gulf War. And they said then that, you know, if we can keep he's basically been defeated, he's been put into a corner, he's been put back in his box. And he's no longer a threat. But as we saw, he did grow in power again. And as a consequence of that, we had Iraq a few years after his humiliation in the Gulf. So I don't think that dictators are necessarily permanently contained after they're humiliated in this way. They learn their lessons and they adapt and then they try and strike again, or at least there have been examples from that in history. I think the other point as well that I wanted to make is about what it would mean if there was some kind of coup in Russia. When you look at the history of what happens in Russia when there have been examples of, of people taking over. Of course, the Bolshevik example is, a, is perhaps the best example, most well-known example. What often happens is that their priority becomes holding on to power domestically, not international subversion. So you would you see what the actions of Lenin and Trotsky and everyone else when they took over in 1917 they immediately prioritise withdrawing from the First World War and essentially massacring anyone within Russia who was a threat to them. And I think that's what we would see is you'd see a hugely unstable Russia. And I admit that is not necessarily a good thing when you've got a country with nuclear weapons. I'm totally willing to concede that. 
But at the same time, it would be prioritising its own inner strife for years. And there are opportunities in that too. And it would not be acting as a destabilising influence in the Middle East, in Europe and elsewhere. And it would not be conducting a genocidal war on Europe's borders. So if you look at countries that are being destabilised in that way through coups and others, there's, there's also reasons to think that this is actually beneficial when you accept that Russia is a hostile state actor. So I, I, so I don't think Dom and I are actually that apart on this necessarily, because I think we, we come at it from the same perspective. But for me, there is not necessarily as much to be gained from, from keeping Putin in power if we think that or at least accept the idea that he may come back from this. Because I, for one, when, given that he's a competent actor in many ways, think that there is some danger in enabling him to remain in power if the option is on the table to see him gone. But as I say, that's just my own view on it. Well, thank you very much, Dom and Francis. This has been very interesting. Do write in with your own thoughts. It'll be very interesting to hear what our listeners make of this discussion. Can I go to your final thoughts? Dom or Francis, who would like to start? Yeah, sure. A couple of quick roundups very, very quickly. So in the last 20 minutes, Maidna, who is on our live blog today, she's she's put up a report that Swedish police have approved a small anti-Quran demonstration at a mosque in Stockholm. That's going to happen today. Now, the, the event is only expected to have two people, but they say they're going to tear up and burn a Quran. Now, that's obviously going to be very, very inflammatory, uh, no pun intended, and set against the backdrop of Sweden, the... the, the planned a session for Sweden to join NATO, which was been held up by Turkey. That could be yet another block. Hoping NATO's hoping that Sweden will be able to join at the Vilnius summit in a couple of weeks' time. But whatever happens today in Stockholm could put the mockers on that. We'll keep watching it. Also, Francis mentioned that Lithuanian president is in is in Kiev today and Lithuania's MOD said they're going to transfer 10 M113 armoured personnel carriers and loads more ammunition to Ukraine. He's joining Polish President Andrzej Duda. He's uh, he's arrived in Kiev this morning on an unannounced visit. And just finally, tomorrow I'm going to be I'm going to be at a press conference with our British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace and a Defence Secretary from another NATO member. For security reasons, I won't say who it is. But if anybody wanted to send me questions to ask this North American member of NATO, and Lloyd Austin is in Washington, then I'd be very pleased to uh, to take your questions. Thank you very much, Dom. Francis Sternley. Well, thanks, David. I'll come to Professor Snyden's remarks in a moment that I just referred to. But we have got some breaking news, which I think it's important for us to, to tack on if we can. And I say it's only just come out on our live blog and it's coming out of the Wall Street Journal. They are saying that Prigozhin was finalising an operation to capture Russian military leaders, but had to accelerate the timeline of his mutiny when Russia became aware of his plans. Now, they are again citing Western officials. It's interesting that the Wall Street Journal have got that intelligence revelation and the New York Times have got another one. Read into that what you will about what who their sources might be. But it's, I think, important just to tack that on. That Clearly, there's a lot of speculation at the moment. And I note that the British intelligence services are also saying that they were aware of plans some time before they actually took place. So we will imagine if there's more to say on that, we'll report on it tomorrow. But the other final thought I just wanted to reference, as I say, is from Professor Snyder and his analysis on, or some reflections, should I say, on the events of the weekend and what he thinks this reveals about Putin's approach to politics and power. So I'll quote from him in brief. So long as Putin is in power, he will threaten and hope that those threats will change the behaviour of his enemies. When that fails, he will change the story. His regime rests on propaganda. 
And in the end, the spectacle generated by the military is there to serve the propaganda, even when that spectacle is as humiliating as can possibly be imagined, as it was on Saturday. His response will be to try to change the subject. It is worth emphasising that on Saturday, the threat to him personally and to his regime was real. Both the risk and the humiliation were incomparably greater than anything that could happen in Ukraine. Compared to power in Russia, power in Ukraine is unimportant. After what we have just seen, no one should be arguing that Putin might be backed into a corner in Ukraine and take some terrible decision. He cannot be backed into a corner in Ukraine. He can only be backed into a corner in Russia. And now we know what he does when that happens. Record a speech and run away. And I think Timothy Snyder makes this point well, that Putin, when it comes between conquests in Ukraine or elsewhere and maintaining power, will always choose the latter. Ukraine arguably need not be existential for him. And if he feels it may become so, he may decrease its importance and wind back. It's within his power to do that, which would only underline the importance of making it clear to Putin that he cannot win there. For as long as he believes that he might, he is bound to stay committed. So the priority, surely, if that is our understanding, it must be for the West to continue to make it clear that there can be no victory for him there, only misery and a gradual erosion of his power. If he believes that then a victory for Ukraine, as articulated by the Ukrainians themselves, may well indeed be very possible. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.